good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. I've apparently had a problem with continuously saying Romans 5 over the last couple of weeks. I guess I'm still so really attached to Romans 5 that I'm sad we're in 6, but 6 is so filled with riches, the riches of God's glory and grace. And as we come to Romans chapter 6, verse 11, really, you're probably looking at this and you're thinking, well, this is a really simple verse, but really what it is is a hinge point. And as we come to this particular text, what I really hope that we are able to understand is not just um, the very simple statement that's found there, because it simply says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in in Christ Jesus, but that we understand the command that is attached to it. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been walking through Romans 6, and as we've been walking through it, we've seen all of this glory that's been brought about by the finished work of Christ on the cross, that those who have been justified by faith have been baptized with Jesus, those who have been justified justified by faith or united with him. But really what I want to deal with today is how all of that is apprehended. How is it that we come to understand that? And how is it that fills our minds and what the effect of that is? Because as we come to this text, if we're able to see all of the beauties that Christ has provided in his cross and then say, that's mine, not in the sense that I have any claim over it or any right to say that that dogmatically is mine based upon my own merit, but because we've believed on Jesus Christ that all of the riches that we have spoken of over the last few weeks, those are actually ours in Christ Jesus. And that that would be the thought that fills our minds as we think about our relationship to sin and also our relationship to God. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 5 and make our way through verse 11. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 5, says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, may we feel the weight of this command. Lord, may we feel its need. And Lord, may we also feel its fruit. Lord, that we might consider ourselves dead to sin in light of the death of Christ. Lord, that we might understand and consider ourselves alive to God because Christ lives unto God forever. Father, may you make these things clear to us. May they fill our minds with glory. Lord, may they cast out all foolishness that the world would offer. And instead, may our minds be ever constantly meditating upon thinking upon whatever is lovely and beautiful and glorious. And Lord, may that inform the way that we live, the way that we worship, the way that we delight in our Lord. So Father, I ask now, would you fill our minds with these great truths that we might worship and worship rightly? 
It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as we come to this text, I want to pay very close attention and really break it down into really three major points. The very first one is, so you also must consider, that's a small one, but I think a vitally important one. And then it goes on to tell us what we must consider. We must consider ourselves dead to sin. And secondly, we must consider ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, there is actually a really important theme that you see Paul use really throughout the entirety of his writings. If you spend any time in his epistles, you'll notice that the very first few chapters are almost always devoted to doctrine. It's teaching us, it's expositing to us essentially the glories of God in Christ. You think about maybe a simple one to look at is Ephesians. You read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and you see that in Ephesians 1, we see the blessings of God, the economy of salvation laid out. We see the Father's work, the Son's work, and the Spirit's work in salvation. And then it goes on to tell us how that's applied to us. Those who were dead in their trespasses and sins are then made alive. And then it goes on to tell us how then are we to live. But there is a really important hinge point in most of those blessed epistles. And it's this moment where we take all that we have read, all that we have understood in passages like Ephesians 1 and 2, and we begin to see them and understand them. I think that maybe a simple way to say that is we apprehend them, we understand them, they fill our minds with glory, and then and only then does that give birth to fruitful living. And in this particular text, I think Paul lays this out rather clearly. And so this constant theme that Paul uses, he uses again here. And if I could just break it apart into three major categories. First, we look at, is this true? Paul has spent the very first six chapters ultimately laying out to us the beauties of the gospel of Jesus. He has reminded us that through Jesus Christ, we have propitiation, we have redemption, ultimately we have justification. He has reminded us that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all righteousness, that this righteousness of God is given to us, not based upon anything that we have done, but based completely on his grace. He has laid all of these beauties out to us. And then he tells us that those things are only grasped by faith and by faith alone. And then he goes on and tells us that this this union with Christ that's birthed through justification by faith is really a lasting union. It's a spiritual union that we have with him. But we actually see as last week in verses seven through nine or seven through 10, that that union we have with Christ will also be, will ultimately bring about a glorification of the body. He's laid these things out to us. And then he essentially looks at us and says, believe these things. He looks at it and he says, like, look, look, I want you to, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. He gives us this very clear command. You must believe everything that I have just laid out to you. You must understand that union with Christ is a true and real spiritual reality. But at the exact same time, you must believe and understand that glorification of the body will actually come. And so as we see this, there is this hinge point, and that's where we land today. Last week, the last really months, we've looked at the truths that he tells us we must believe. And then really from this point forward, we're going to get, okay, how then are we to live in light of these realities? But so the very first thing that we must do is, 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 is apprehend these things, fill our minds with them. And I want to say this because normally in a sermon, we're like, here, I, wanna, I want you to see doctrine and then maybe perhaps we'll go on to faithful living. But I want us to understand this whole premise of this verse is believe these things, is may your mind be filled with these realities because you will not live faithfully before God if you do not believe the gospel of God. You can do it to the best of your ability. You can white knuckle it, but you will not live faithfully before him unless you truly know the beauties of the gospel. That's the reason that we speak of affection so frequently here. 
And so today, if I can do anything, it is to perhaps fill the cup of your affections in light of the glories that God has set before us. Because if we believe them, if we love them, if we cherish them, then we will live faithfully. To flip it is pharisaicalism. We love him and we love the truths that he has given us and we delight in them and then and only then do we obey And so what doctrines have ultimately led us to this particular so? If you look at verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves. The so here, the doctrines that led us to this particular point are twofold. First, union with Christ in baptism, ultimately justification being applied. Brothers and sisters, when we are baptized into Christ Jesus, we are buried therefore with him, ultimately to be raised therefore with him. This is the application of justification. This is when we actually do possess all the glories of the gospel. We can say, I am now alive in Jesus Christ because I have been buried with him. This is a reality that is present from this day, from the moment that you are born again throughout all eternity. The life that Jesus Christ gives you at conversion is a life that you will always possess. And then he goes further, not only is the, so, the doctrine that leads us to this so justification applied, it is also glorification promised. You see this language of a resurrection like his. It's not just speaking of a spiritual resurrection, it's speaking of a bodily resurrection. It's the glorification of the body promised to us. And so we have these two great doctrines set out before us, justification applied, life now, And then we have glorification promise, life to come. And essentially this so brings us to a rather interesting question. What then am I to think about myself during this strange in-between? We live in this strange in-between, don't we? We have life and life now. Our, our, Our spirits actually live unto God. But at the exact same time, this body is still, as Paul will go on to say throughout Romans 6 and 7, still a body of death. There's still corruption here. But he's promised me that this corruption will be conquered altogether and the body itself will be raised. And so here I am in this in-between. How then am I to live in the in-between? How am I to think about myself as both a sinner and a saint? as both one who is, still has the lasting remnants of corruption but must be called holy, how then am I to live? Well, Paul tells us, and he tells us really in two major categories. The very first thing that we must understand of ourselves is that we are dead to sin. Notice what it says in verse 11 again. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. And I do want to remind you that this is not a suggestion. This is a command. You must consider yourself dead to sin. And then he goes further. That's just the negative. The positive is this. You must consider yourselves then alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so how am I to live in this in-between? I must consider myself dead to sin. I must take the promises of God as reality and live in light of them. I must know that I am dead to sin. And at the exact same time, I must know that I am alive unto God. Now, This verse is vitally important to how we live here and now, but it is also a verse that has been assaulted by all types of foolishness. And here's what I want to point out, because as we come to this, I think we need to ask the question, okay, what does it mean to be dead to sin? But I think a very important question we must ask is, okay, what does it not mean to be dead to sin? And there are two major things that I want to bring to your attention because this verse has been abused in some heinous ways that have led to both the sorrow of the saint and also, I am convinced, an assault upon the glory of God. 
And so as we come to this verse, and as we come to what it means to understand, am I, so I'm dead to sin, what does that mean for me? The very first thing it does not mean is it does not mean that we will be sinless. Brothers and sisters, I know, and I have sat with many of you as you have mourned over your sin. I cannot wait for the day that every saint of God that gathers here will gather around the throne and sing praises unto God forevermore, free from sin forever. But that is not ours yet. We still await that great salvation of glorification. And it has been, unfortunately, often abused, and I am convinced, to the attack and snare of many a saint. Brothers and sisters, you are viewed in light of the glorious gospel of God as sinless altogether because of Jesus Christ's work. And I know that in the strange in-between, we still feel that old man. And you think, how can I even be a Christian? I still sin, I still struggle, I still wage war. Brothers and sisters, the important thing for us to understand is that Jesus did not promise us that we would be sinless here and now. He promised that he would conquer sin altogether at his return. And that day will come. And so what hope can we have amidst this strange in-between as we still struggle and wrestle against sin? The very first thing we must understand is John makes it clear to us that if we say that we have no sin, then we are liars. And not only liars, but we must look at God and call him one. First John 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But you know, John's point in 1 John is not to look at you and say, be sinless. Though clearly his goal, his, what he's longing to produce is a surety of salvation amidst our own continued, uh, our own continued frailty in life. But the, the refrain that really is brought about in 1 John is look to Jesus. As it says, if you continue in sin that grace may abound, no, of course not, but I still have that lasting remnant. What can I do amidst that lasting remnant of sin? Well, 1 John 2 tells us, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This text does not mean that we will be sinless. It means that we have a sinless Savior who is ultimately able to redeem into the uttermost. And so as we come to this text, we must not look at it and say, oh, then there cannot be any sin in me lest I not be a Christian at all. No, the mark of the Christian is one who professes, I'm guilty before God but I have a great and mighty savior. I have a mediator who is able to mediate my case with perfection and not just to find me without fault, but to fill my cup filled with righteousness. And thus I stand before God, as it were, as righteous as Christ is. It does not mean that we will be sinless. It means that we have a sinless savior. But secondly, we must not understand this text to mean that we can go on sinning. The two ways that this is often abused is odd because it literally is polar opposites. You must be without sin altogether or because this is true, you can sin and multiply it all you wish. Brothers and sisters, this text is literally sandwiched between two how dare yous. I mean, genuinely, I want you to look at Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And then on the heels of that in verse 15, it says, what then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace by no means. The reality is that this statement of being dead to sin does not mean that we must be completely and totally sinless. And it certainly does not mean that we can go on sinning that grace may increase. Instead, it means something I'm convinced all the more lovely. It means that when we look to Jesus as Christ's death, we see truly that those things, those those promises that are brought about by it are actually mine. And not only are they mine, I must believe that. 
I must hold those things dear. I must trust that his death is indeed a redeeming, a sacrificial, a propitiatory death. And so let's ask a couple of questions. What ultimately does it mean when I say, when I believe that I am dead to sin? First, it means that I believe that Jesus has freed me from Adam's condemnation. If you look at the immediate context of this, and I know that we have referred to Adam multiple times over the last few weeks, but it seems as though what Paul is doing is bringing our mind's attention to both Adam and to Moses. And he says, the beauty of this is I'm free from that reign of sin and death. When I think about the curse in Genesis chapter three, that language of dust to dust, dust to dust, I can say with great certainty, that's not mine. The curse that we see in Genesis chapter three, we see our Lord redeem us from. I mean, think of even the curse in and of itself. It foretells so perfectly, doesn't it? It tells us that the curse will bear forth thorns and thistles in your labor. What is it that our king bore upon his brow as he was crucified? Thorns and thistles. He has removed the curse of the law from me. He has removed the curse from me altogether. Though there still seems to be some lasting remnants of it, I know this, that it is not dust to dust for me. Instead, though I have borne the image of the man of dust, I will also, by his grace, bear the image of the man of heaven. 1 Corinthians 15 makes that quite clear. I believe that Jesus has freed me from Adam's condemnation. Secondly, I believe that death no longer has dominion over me. Now, this one is sweet. I want to refer you back to verse nine. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Why can I say that death no longer has dominion over me? because death no longer has dominion over Christ. Remember, brothers and sisters, death had no right to him. He laid down his life for us so that we might, so that he might conquer death forever. And this I know for certain, where Christ is, there I will be also. He has made this quite clear from this text. I will be united with him. I will dwell with him. I will live with him. I have been buried with him. Therefore, I will have a resurrection like his. All of these things are true. And I must know that death no longer has dominion over me. And that does mean, brothers and sisters, that death has fundamentally changed for the Christian. No longer do we say, ah, death, that great wicked thing that would separate me from all the things that I hold dear here on this earth. No, brothers and sisters, we say with Paul, death is gain, gain. And I want to go back to the command here. So you must believe these things. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that death is gain? Do you believe that that all the riches of heaven, even in that intermediate state between the justification and the resurrection of the body, do you believe that that state with Christ is infinitely, and I want you to pay very close attention to that word, infinitely better than all the riches that you have here? Can you say with your last breath, gain? Because that's what Christ has purchased for us. Christ has ultimately died to death so that we might not fear it any longer. It has been removed. Dominion is lost altogether. And now death is something that must be welcomed as a sweet and glorious door that brings me before our great King. No, we must say gain with Paul because death no longer has dominion. It has indeed been changed forevermore. Death is gain. But then we go on and it seems quite clear that I believe because if I believe that Jesus has conquered death altogether and I believe Jesus at all in John chapter 11, verse 25, that I will actually never die. I want you to notice the language of John 11, 25 through 26. This is Jesus' I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And I want you to pay very close attention to verse 26. Verse verse 25 is dealing with the body. Verse 26 is dealing with true life unto God. And it says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
What does that I mean? What does that actually mean? Certainly, death doesn't have dominion over me, but the whole concept of death is separation. And eternal death is separation, me from God. But I know that if I be in Jesus Christ, that is never a reality for me. I will never be separated from the love of God. Romans 8's whole crescendo is that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must say when we see Jesus die on that cross and ultimately be be raised, when we consider that we have died to sin, then we can say with great certainty that not only does death no longer have dominion over me, it's true and lasting claim can never actually be brought about because it cannot separate me from the love of God. Why? Because Jesus conquered death. And not only did he conquer death, he brought me near. He drew me close to enjoy God forever. Ultimately, I think a simple way to say it is, you have been eternally separated from that which separated you from God. Isaiah makes it clear that your sin has made a separation between you and your God and your iniquity has hid his face from you. Where is my sin and iniquity? Where is that which would separate me from my king? It has been conquered in Christ. That great thing, that barrier, that thing that would bid me depart has been removed. There is no charge that can be brought that says away from him. Instead, it seems that Christ has conquered the sin so completely that should I be bid depart, it would be a violation of his divine justice. Praise be to God that not only has death lost its dominion, we must know with great certainty that we never experience that true death of hell. Instead, we go to dwell eternally with our heavenly father. Not only do I believe that, it is, that I am free from the dominion of death and that I will never die, I must also believe that I am no longer a slave to sin. Why? Because the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. Death has no hold because sin has no hold. I think about this and we, and we deal with the concept of slavery to sin. And I think oftentimes we misunderstand this because we think far too highly of ourselves and our natural state. But brothers and sisters, what it actually means to be free from slavery to sin is that I can now not sin. Do you know that before you were converted, before the Spirit of God gave you life, that all you could do is actually sin? There was no fruit to be produced in your life. There was nothing pleasing. There was no glorious aroma that rose up to the heavens that God found delightful and pleasing. Instead, it was all stench. It was all, it was all the a smell that brought about his anger, his wrath and fury. And now because of Jesus's death, I can now go on not sinning. And what freedom that indeed is, that wicked thing that bounds me, that kept me, that ultimately longed for nothing more than my death has been absolutely conquered and it has no rightful claim over me any longer. I can now not sin. And perhaps that's not good news to you, but brothers and sisters, if you truly understand what sin is, that is the most excellent of news. Because praise be to God, that thing that is so wicked, that is rebellion, not only against God, but against self has been conquered. I am free not only to not sin, but as we'll see here in a moment, I am free to obey. I am free to live unto God, to delight in him forevermore. But not only am I no longer a slave to sin, it goes on to, I think, Hebrews 9, 14 really lays this out for us clearly, that I am free from all guilt. Dear Saint, Should you stand before the court of heaven and should the law come and charge you? Should your own life be played out before the King of glory, the omniscient one, the righteous one, the holy one, the judge of all the earth that will do what is right? There would be no guilt if you are in Christ. 
It has been obliterated by him. It has been conquered in totality. When you stand before him, should the law of God be laid out before you? And should every line of it be read? And you perhaps for a moment might have an ounce of fear and trembling. But praise be to God, we have a mediator who has washed us clean from all guilt. He has cleansed us even to the conscience by his blood. There is no guilt for those who have died to sin. And here's the reality. You must believe these things. You must believe these things. This is the call of the Apostle Paul when he says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. All of these things are born either of sin or death. And all of that has been disarmed in Christ. If you believe that you are dead to sin, then you must know with great certainty. I mean, know it, own it, apprehend it, that you are dead to sin, that it no longer has a hold on you, that you can go on and live obediently unto God. Not only that, but you must know even on your deathbed that you can cry gain and that be true. This is what it means to be dead to sin. That we look unto Jesus and see his death and say, everything his death has accomplished is mine in Christ. I have that. I own it by his free grace. It is mine. And that leads us, I think, to a simple question. What does this consideration produce in me? What does it bring about in me? If I understand that I'm dead to sin in Christ, what does it produce? And the very first thing it produces is a glorious and holy dependence. Because none of this is yours in and of yourself. None of it. If we read through this and you say, oh yes, I believe that I'm no longer a slave to sin because I abolished sin. No, you didn't. You failed time and time again. You have no ability to abolish sin. Or do you think that you're strong enough on your deathbed to sustain yourself after your body has withered away? No, most certainly not. What we ultimately see in this very verse, because it's so clearly attached to union with Jesus, is all of this is only mine in him. And I think this helps us understand that blessed passage of John 15, abide in him. It creates a lasting and glorious dependence unto him. I must depend. I must cast myself. I must believe on Christ. And believing on Christ means all of these things I must believe as well. It certainly produces a dependence, a blessed dependence at that. Third, secondly, it produces awe and worship. You know, we're working through this and it's like all of these beautiful doctrines and here's the meditation part. Do I believe these things? Do I meditate upon them? If someone were to ask me my relationship with sin, how would I respond? So often we respond, I am wretched, I am wicked, I am evil. Brothers and sisters, there may be that lasting remnant in you, but that is not what the scripture tells you to believe. It tells you to believe that you are righteous altogether, that you are dead to sin, that you are alive unto God. This is what we must apprehend. What a glorious gospel we have. What a strong reason to worship we have. That wicked thing, sin, I am dead to it. It has no rightful claim on me. I am free and free indeed. Yes, it produces a great and glorious worship because we see that all of this is ours only in Christ. We worship the man, Christ Jesus, who executed our death for us. But that is just the negative. The command here is to consider ourselves. You must consider yourselves dead to sin. And secondly, we must consider ourselves alive unto God. Praise be to God. Worship Christ over the freedom that we have from sin and death. We are dead to it. But secondly, and I think all the more gloriously, we must understand that because of Christ, we are alive unto God, but only in him. Now, I think it is important for us to ask why, what life Paul is speaking of here. 
We speak of life often. We speak of even the bodily life of the natural man. We speak of the resurrection life that we have here and now, but we often speak of that eternal life, that glorification life that we will have with him forever. But here it is not making reference to the glorification of the body, nor is it making reference to the application of regeneration. Instead, it is making reference to this glorious, strange in between in which we live, longing for that which we do not have yet and rejoicing in that which has been given. This is the life that we live here and now after we have been born again. And I think that that leads us to ask another question, which is why is this admonition so important? Why must we understand these things? Why would Paul take the extra time to say, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ? And it is because we still live in this body of death. I know that you feel it, saints. I know that you still feel that lasting remnant of sin in you. And I pray that you hate it with everything in you. I pray that you long for the redemption of your bodies, that that sin will be conquered altogether. But that leads us to understand, as we look at this, why is this so important? Because brothers and sisters, if you're anything like me, I'm still seeing this lasting remnant of sin. And I'm asking, can I be alive to God as I continue in sin from time to time, as I rebel against his command, as I do not love him rightly? And he goes on and says, brother, you're alive to God in Christ. And how do we think about this? What must we understand? What is it ultimately that Jesus has brought to us by his resurrection life? What do I believe if I consider myself alive to God in Christ Jesus? The very first thing I believe is I believe that here and now I can see the kingdom of God and not only see the kingdom of God, but delight in it. Could you see, could you perceive, could you grasp the beauties of heaven before the spirit of God made those things apparent to you? No, perhaps it is you were like me and you opened the scriptures and you read through them and yet it seemed as though you were just reading words on a page and then the, 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 the infinite grace of God came in the spirit and revealed these beauties to you. You saw and beheld Christ and not only Christ, but all the glorious works of him, all of his sacrificial labors, all of his righteousness filled full. And you know from that point forward that I can see the kingdom of God. He's given me eyes to see and to behold it and not even just behold it, but love it. And previously, it's quite clear that I was in enmity with God. I hated him. Romans 8 will go on to say that the mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God, but praise be to the Spirit. He gave me life to see and to behold him. I am alive unto God because the Spirit gave me this life. And now I can see the kingdom of God and I can rejoice. I can delight in that blessed kingdom. And not only delight, I can long for that blessed kingdom. I can look forward to the redemption of the body. I can look forward to freedom from living in this world filled with sin and look forward to a day where sin will be abolished forever, that its presence will be no more. Not only do I believe that here and now I can see the kingdom of God, I believe that here and now I can obey Jesus. We speak of obedience often, and we always speak of obedience as born of affection. Brothers and sisters, how can we obey if we have no affection? How can we obey if we have no love? I think of that verse, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And as I was working through the book of John, I came to that and I thought, I don't even have the love. I don't have the love that would produce this obedience in me. How can I have this very thing? Well, Romans 8, 11 makes this really clear for us. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. How can I obey Jesus? Because Jesus gave me life by his spirit, life to see, to behold, to love, to adore. And if I adore that, I most certainly will obey because he is not wrong when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Brothers and sisters, our obedience is always born of affection and praise be to God. Not only has he given us his spirit to give life to our mortal mortal bodies, he has given us his spirit to see and to behold and to rejoice in the kingdom of God. But that is not all that he has brought about for us. That's not all that it means to live unto God. I think another way that we can think about this is I believe that here and now I enjoy fellowship with God. Here and now, I enjoy fellowship with God. And and dear saints, for some reason, it is often perceived that the pastoral life is distinct from from the congregation. That is not at all true. There is no extra measure of the Spirit given upon me that I might have a deeper fellowship with God than you know. The saint of God is brought near by the blood of Christ. Every single saint has the great joy of enjoying fellowship with God forevermore. But if I could for a moment remind you of our previous state, I think of men like Nadab and Abihu or Uzzah who would make their way into the presence of God and instantly would be put to death. That is not our state. Our state is not that if we make our way into the holiness of God to see that, to behold it, that we would instantly be put to death. Instead, because Jesus is mediating for me, because he has cleansed me with his blood, because he has anointed me with his spirit, that I am invited to dwell eternally with him. And that even right now, I am called to draw near with hearts full of assurance and with confidence. We have the right by Jesus's finished work to draw near to the father and delight in his presence. I think of that great Psalm, Psalm 16, in his presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. This is what you were invited into based upon the work of Christ. When I say that I live unto God, it means that I have a rightful claim of fellowship with him, that I am bid come near, draw near. Not only that, and I think perhaps one of the sweetest blessings of this is that I believe that here and now I enjoy fellowship with God's people. Oftentimes we come to texts like this and we always deal with it in an individual way. And as Don and I were talking this week, he brought this out and there's a precious glory that's brought about in the fellowship of the saints. But do you notice that that fellowship is not had with the one who is not alive unto God? Do you notice that as you are brought unto everlasting life, that all of a sudden birth from that very moment that you've come to faith, you were given an entire family to rejoice with, that you were an alien, you were a stranger, even going so far as to say you were an enemy. And then all of a sudden you were born again and now you dine at many's tables because you have the rightful claim to be there because you are a brother or a sister in Christ. You see, behold, the kingdom of God, the same spirit that resides within in them resides within you. The spirit of unity, is the worship of Jesus. And every single one of us who have been born into the family of God, who are alive unto him, have rightful claim to fellowship among the brothers and sisters of the church. We are alive unto God. Now, I think one of the most simplistic ways to understand this is, I believe that here and now, my life is pleasing to God. When you consider this, that right now the life that we live is pleasing unto God. I want you to consider your former state before we go into this. Our former state, not a single breath we breathed was pleasing unto God. It was only by his long suffering that we made it to conversion. It was only by his patience and his forbearance that we would actually reach the point where we would confess Abba Father. Apart from that, apart from his patience, apart from his kindness, apart from his long suffering, we would never have arrived because every action that we took was an enmity and rebellion against him. 
And now, just understand the radical nature of going from being dead to sin to alive unto God. Because now, that's literally the opposite case for the Christian. It is not that everything I do is is at enmity with God. Instead, because everything that we do is washed by the blood of Christ, everything we do is pleasing unto Him. Just to consider a couple. In our work, in my labors, in just a normal everyday life, in getting up and making my way to my very routine life, where I get up, I go labor, I provide, I provide for my family. That is washed in the blood of Jesus and it is made holy unto God. It is consecrated unto him and it is pleasing unto him when he sees the saint labor well. But not just because they're laboring, but because it is washed in the blood of Christ. We, are, we now have the ability to live unto God in such a way that my whole life is pleasing to him. My whole life, my work, and my suffering. At one point, my suffering was not discipline. It was just the rightful wrath do me. But now my suffering is a pleasing aroma unto God. When I suffer and suffer well, I do so to the glory of God. It is pleasing unto Him when the saint lives faithfully amidst trial and tribulation. Or what of my marriage when I go through difficulties and when I go through the greatest possible joys of marriage? Was that holy unto the Lord before the Spirit gave you life? It seems as though what actually needs to happen inside of a marriage for it to be holy unto God is for the Spirit to give life to both parties, that it to be holy and worshipful unto God. How is it that my marriage can be pleasing to God? Are you alive unto Him in Christ? If you're alive unto Him in Christ, then most certainly it is pleasing. What about in my singleness? As I live my life here in some form of singleness, am I honoring God in it? Well, before you knew Jesus, before you'd been washed in the blood of the lamb, then everything we did, including our singleness, was not worship unto him. But now that we have been washed by the blood of Christ, yes, even in your singleness, in your marriage, in your suffering, in your work. And then I go on to the duties of the Christian life. How many of us made prayers before we were born again? Were your prayers acceptable before God, before they were washed in the blood of Jesus? No, they were not. It is only through that blessed mediator, Christ the man, that we have access to the Father. Brothers and sisters, remember Nadab and Abihu. They made their way into the presence of the Lord and what instantly took place is they were executed by that glory. You need a mediator for your presence to be permitted into the glorious throne room of grace. And praise be to God, we have one. Now I can enter in, in all of my holy duties and prayer and Bible reading and worship, I come knowing that this is acceptable before God. And not only is it acceptable before God, it is to his delight. How can all of these things be true? Because Jesus has washed me by his blood and I am alive unto him based upon his finished work. Now, not only does believing and apprehending and rejoicing the fact that I have been, that I am alive unto God, believe all of these things. I think it also believes one other. I believe that here and now I have life. John 17, 3 This is eternal life, that you know God. Brothers and sisters, if we know God and Christ whom he has sent, then we truly live today. There is no life apart from him. There is only sin and death apart from him. But if we have been united with him, if we have been baptized into him, then we have life and life forever here and now, but not just here and now. We also know that the life I have now will give way to a future life. It will give way to that bodily resurrection for which we long. Dear Saint, 
The whole reason that we work through this, the whole reason we need to understand, the whole reason Paul makes this commandment is that so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus is because we live in this very strange in-between where I have life and I look forward to life, where I'm dead to sin, yet I still feel its effects in my life. But here is what we must believe, that Jesus's deliverance, Jesus's salvation is a sufficient and a perfect salvation. Because we have been justified, we know that we are going and continue to be sanctified. And if we are being sanctified, then we know that we will be glorified. These are the realities of the Christian life. And so as I live in this strange in-between, I must go on saying, I am dead to sin because Christ died to sin once for all. And you must also know that I have life in life now. I enter into the throne room of grace as a child, as a son and daughter, or even more so as a, as a bride. And not only that, but I look forward to the day when my body will be made perfect like his and I will dwell forever around that throne and I will sing his praises forevermore. I am always and eternally alive unto God, yet only through Christ. Let's pray.